0: show you a picture I've got to show you a picture now as, as we as a staff were kind of like talking through the script and working through things and we're talking about this like Abraham line of thinking Steve immediately sends me this this meme and it just cracked me up and I just got to share it with you today here it is And some of us have that dad, don't we? (laughs) So warped. It's so warped. I want to take you through Galatians 3 this morning. It gets thick. I'm just going to warn you right now. This whole chapter that we're going to look at this week in part and next week in part two, um, it's, it's confusing. Paul's argument takes us deep into the woods, and we can really get lost in the trees if we're not careful. So I just want to encourage you off the bat that if you're sensing that, it's okay. You stand in a long line of people who go before you. But the good news is I'm here to help you. And the good news is it's understandable because Paul assumes you know a lot of stuff that you don't actually probably know. And so what we're going to do these next couple of weeks as we continue this journey through Galatians is I'm going to try to help, help you cut a path through the forest, maybe not to get every detail of the passage, but at least to see where he is trying to take you and why it is so important. Now remember, from top to bottom, beginning to end, Galatians is all about the gospel. And what Paul is doing from chapter 1 through chapter 6 is calling these Galatian Christians to stay true to the gospel and warning them that if they abandon the gospel as they seem to be doing, they are doing nothing less than abandoning God himself. That if they continue to go about being a part of God's covenant people, And finding favor with him on the basis of what they are doing, they are not only perverting the gospel, they are perverting God himself. And last week, Paul brought this all to a head with a great climactic statement that I want to put on the screen again for you today. Today. And I want you to read it with me, because this is one of the most articulate descriptions you will find in the New Testament of what this gospel is that Paul is writing about. Would you read it with me? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Even in this description, there is a whole lot of terminology getting thrown around. It's rooted in an idea of being righteous before God. How do we get right with God? Because fundamentally, that's what it comes down to. Being right With God. And over and over again, forwards and backwards, inside and out, you're seeing the dichotomy that he's throwing up, right? Throwing up, that he's throwing out. (laughs) It's not by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. It's by faith in Jesus Christ, not by works of the law. I won't set aside the grace of God because if it could be gained by the works of the law, Christ died for nothing. How many times can Paul underscore it? Not by your efforts. You're right, standing with God is not about what you do. The gospel is not about what you do. It is about what God does and God did, most notably through Jesus and his death and resurrection. And so from here, Paul launches us into Galatians chapter 3. I don't have enough room on a screen to put the whole 14 verse segment up there for you. But it begins like this, and let me read it today. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your eyes, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so stupid? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing... Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify all the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. Quote, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, quote, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Hopefully, you've been able to find some of the things that Paul is trying to impress on them and underscore, and yet at the same time, in 14 verses, he quotes the Old Testament six times, and it can leave you in moments going, what is he talking about? Let me try to set the stage. Growing up, we've all learned that hard work pays off, and that if we want something in life, we get it by putting effort into it. Agree? You want to get good grades. You just have to do the work of paying attention in class and doing your homework. If you want to start, you need to practice and train. If you want to get fit, healthy, lose weight, or, or whatever configuration of that might be, you need to exercise and and diligently guard and monitor what you eat. You want to get money, you got to do your chores or show up for the job by which you get the paycheck. And of course, we can talk hobbies. We can talk relationships. Relationships. We can talk whatever it is we experience in this world, that if we want them to thrive, to excel, if we, as I said earlier, get something out of it, it comes from what we invest into it. And we know this. We've been taught it and we teach it to our kids. We pick it up just from the intuition of life itself. So it begs the question, why is Paul getting so torqued off at these Galatian Christians when they are doing simply what they've been taught to do, what life has taught them to do? Why would it be any different with God? See, if this is how life works, that we sow what we reap, or reap what we sow. Knew that sounded wrong coming out of my mouth, and it's like, where is it? <laughs> if we reap what we sow, why wouldn't that be any different? With God. And it's that, it's that right there that Galatians is about at its core. And it's that right there that Paul picks up in chapter three and confronts it head on and tries to turn that whole line of thinking on its head. You foolish Galatians, how can you be so stupid? How can you think that that would be the same as it is with God? Paul is so perplexed by this that he's like, someone must have cast a spell on you because there's no other logical explanation for why you're being so dumb. Who gives up what they already have and have received for free in order to then labor, toil, and work to try to get it back. This makes no sense, right? It makes no sense. What does he say? I'd like to receive just, I'd like to know just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit of God by what you did, by what you contributed, by what you poured into it? Or by believing in, in what you heard? Did God, in other words, start working among you, transforming you, saving you? Did he do that because the way you just kind of pulled it together and got your life on track and showed him that you are a worthy person to be invested in? Or did it just simply come by receiving what he so freely wanted to give oh, you foolish Galatians, what are you doing? And I think he would say, you foolish people of fellowship of faith, you're bewitched if you find yourself doing the same. God has done his work among you and has given his gift of salvation and invited you to be a part of his covenant people because of what he has done for you because of what Christ has done on a cross. Not because of these works of the law that you strive to keep or emulate or a new quality of life that you seek to bring. Paul rails on them. He rails on them for giving up that which they already have in Christ to try to buy it back, to earn it in a way that they never can. You know, this isn't Galatians, but it's worth noting. In another one of his letters, Paul writes this. There's no one who's righteous, not even one. That person sitting next to you is not righteous. The person behind you is not righteous. That person you love more than anyone in this world, whether they're here or not, is not righteous. I am not righteous. You are not righteous. There is no one righteous, not even one. And so if there is no one who is righteous, what hope do you have of ever getting right before God by your own efforts or by works of the law? None is the point that Paul is making. You foolish Galatians, why are you trying, working and toiling and slaving for something you can't even do when God has given it freely to you? Paul is trying to turn on its head. Any myth that we might hold of our own powers and abilities. In Galatians 3.10, he says, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Why? Because the law is bad? No. Because if you don't do it fully, if you don't do it completely, if you don't find yourself in obedience to the whole thing, then you are fundamentally a lawbreaker. A lawbreaker against God. And justice demands its due. Which of you here can say, I've done it all? I've done everything the Lord has expected of me. I've done everything that He's commanded. No one. No one. Because there is no one who is righteous, not even one. And Paul, in this letter, particularly in chapter 3, is trying to explode any notion we have of getting right with God by our own power, strength, goodness, or ability. Now, I want to share with you an audio clip here momentarily. It's a clip by Bill Hybels, something I heard years ago, but he speaks into this so beautifully. And I thought of just trying to summarize it, but I think hearing it from his own lips and the way he crafts the story is worth our time. Now, disclaimer, I know that in recent years there has been Controversy surrounding Bill Hybels that he stepped down from Willow Creek, particularly over accusations of various sin issues. And if you expect your Christian leaders and teachers to be above reproach, you are absolutely right. But if in the process of their sin, you also reject the message that they bring in the name of God then you have just exposed yourself of being embracing a personality cult rather than worshiping the one that they point to. And so I say this to simply say this. I'm not invested in what happened over at Willow Creek. I don't know the ins and the outs, but I do know this regardless of where the truth stands on it, God uses broken people. And I will not reject the good message of a broken person or sinful person any more than you should reject the message of a broken and sinful person standing before you today or that I will reject the message of the broken and sinful people who penned the words of the Bible. So now that that disclaimer is out of the way, hopefully what Bill has to say will make an impact on what Paul is trying to say to these Galatians. Let's roll it.
1: Many years ago, I decided to take up the sport of racquetball. One game was all it took for me to to get hooked on the sport. And I just loved it. I started playing once a week and then several times a week. Court time was cheap in those days, about four bucks an hour, as I recall. So I'd invite a friend and split the cost. He'd pay three and I'd pay one and we'd go at it. Once a Dutchman, always a Dutchman. But in only a matter of months, I found myself winning almost every single game I played. Of course, I was screening my opponents rather carefully. They were mostly the elderly and the infirmed. But there was no question in my mind that I had found a sport that I could really play well. One day at the club where I was playing, I saw a poster on the side of a locker, and it was announcing that there was going to be a tournament at our club. I didn't know anything about racquetball tournaments. It said that there were going to be three skill levels. In this tournament there would be a C level for what I understood to be like recreational novices and then there was a B level for more serious competent racquetball players and then from what I could discern there was this A level which was for guys that lived at the club and slept with their rackets in their bed so I remember standing in front of that poster on the side of the locker and I was asking myself what skill level I should enter the tournament at And because I was a pastor and teacher of the Bible, which promotes virtues like sober-mindedness and humility, I said to myself, now admit it, Bill, even though you've caught on to the game quite quickly, you've only played the game for a couple months, you might not win the (laughs) A-League. Okay? There's a chance. But maybe you better play it safe and sign up at the B-Level. Because if you win that, then next time around you could enter at the A-Level and, you know, then it'd be about right. But this was for sure. I wanted no part of that C league. I was way beyond being a recreational novice. Now, as I was finalizing my decision between the A and the B level, an older gentleman walked up to me in the locker room. He said, You thinking about entering that tournament? I said, Well, I'm thinking about it. And I could tell he was kind of checking me over physically. <laughs> kind of. He was trying to decide how good a racquetball player I might be. And I kind of checked him out, too. Older guy, little pot belly, no reach, stubby little arms, you know, no threat at all. (laughs) Looked like the local pharmacist, you know, no threat. Uh, Then the guy just, he offered the information. He said, you know, I played in last month's tournament. I said, what level? He said, C. I thought, that figures. And then with a proud smile on his face, he said, and I came in 10th. I thought to myself, he's proud of that? If I came in 10th place in the C class, I'd want to crawl in a hole and die. And he's announcing this in the locker room. Uh, Then out of the blue, the guy says, you know, I've already played a couple games this afternoon, but if you're looking for a game, I'd be happy to play you. I said, okay, and asked him for three bucks, and we started to walk up the way. But you see, I thought playing this guy would be smart. It would be sort of strategic, because I could use a game with him as a kind of benchmark. I could gauge how a C guy played, and that would help me determine if I should enter the B level or the A level. Any of you smelling anything coming here? Yeah. This pot-bellied 50-year-old pharmacist type beat me 21-zip in about seven minutes. No, no, no! you don't have to applaud, that's, that's, that's a little over the top. Uh, I had never seen a racquetball hit so hard and so low. I, want, I needed a spatula, you know, to get the thing up. Well, we chatted about the game back in the locker room afterwards. He didn't even have to shower. And uh, I only showered to cover up a weeping spell I was having. But I asked the guy a couple questions, I said, "Now." If you placed 10th in the C class, if you were to have played like the winner of the C class, what do you think the score would be? And he said, oh, I'd like to think I could get five points off the winner of the C. He'd probably be 21-5. He beat me 21-zip. I'm going, okay. Well, if the winner of the C class were to play a really good B guy, what would that be like? He said, ugly, slice and dice, murder, 21-zip, count on it. I said, oh, well, like, what would a good A guy do to a B guy? Just Kill him, chew him up, spit him out. I feel another weeping spell coming on, you know. And he says, you should see the pros. They kill the A-league guys. Then he goes, oops, got to go. He said, enjoyed the game. (laughs) I thought, I'll bet you did. I sat there alone in that locker room. I just shook my head. I thought, how deceived can a person be? 20 minutes ago, I was almost an A-level competitor. (laughs) Certainly a B-level competitor. I didn't even want to mess with this C-class. To state the obvious, I had vastly overrated my racquetball abilities. I had never objectified my skill level. I didn't have a benchmark by which to assess my level of play. And that 50-year-old pot-belly guy became my benchmark, and he made me face racquetball reality. You know, athletics isn't the only arena where people tend to overrate themselves. It can happen in the political arena. Candidate thinks he's gonna win an election by a landslide, winds up getting slam dunked at the polls. Happens in the business arena where a company finds out it's not as recession-proof as it thought it was. But nowhere does the problem of overrating oneself happen more frequently, my humble opinion, than in the spiritual arena. Let me come right out for the sake of candor, put my cards on the table in front of you. I think most people vastly overrate how good they are in the eyes of a holy God.
0: Pretty striking to think about. How tempted are we? How likely are we? How disposed are we to overestimate our righteousness and our works and our abilities before a holy God? Galatia was being sold a false bill of goods, being told that what began with Christ now had to be completed by their efforts and works of the law and carrying the burden of the Mosaic commands, that to be a part of God's people The burden shifted from God to them. Now, in these passages that we shared, Paul says, well, remember 3 verse 10, that anyone who does not follow everything written in the book of the law is under God's curse. That when they stand before God, they will be smoked, beaten, not able to compete not able to hold their own in that arena. The curse, of course, that Paul is talking about here refers to Judgment Day. The idea that each and every one of us will stand before God someday. As certain as we will die, we will stand before our Maker and give in account of our lives. And we will be measured up with no place to hide, not against the person next to you, not against the general trajectories of people in this world, but against God's standard, revealed in his holy law. And that all who do not live up to that standard merit and earn nothing but judgment from God. But there's another curse that comes with it as well. It's kind of a curse by extension that I think we face now in relation to that fear. It's more of a psychological curse. That low-grade anxiety of wondering, do I measure up? Am I good enough? Will God accept me and just not notice or pay attention to these other things. It's that low-grade fear that many of you know so well that you tend to live with around people or maybe God himself when deep in your heart, you know that you do not measure up to them. That fear of wondering and speculating what they must think about you how they must feel about you, whether they'll accept you. But Paul shows a different way, a way free of the curse in all of its forms. And with a master stroke, Paul uses Abraham, who is the founding father of the Jewish people. Back in Genesis chapter 15, after God comes to Abraham and God, just simply out of his grace, tells Abraham that he will be great and that a great nation will come from him and that he'll bless whoever blesses him and curse whoever curses him and that all people on earth will be blessed through him. After God just kind of gushes it out, God comes to him again. He comes to him again and he says basically the same thing in chapter 15. Abraham, look up at the stars your descendants will be like that lord what i uh, abraham what i've told you i'm going to do and it says that abraham believed god and it was credited to him as righteousness he wasn't righteous because he tried really hard he wasn't righteous because he did all these things that he was commanded to do. He simply trusted God. He took God at his word. He trusted God and put his faith in him and God credited it to him as righteousness. There's these people telling the Galatians that you've begun by the gospel, but now you've got to get in with God by what you do. And Paul's turning it on its head. Not only can you never do it, you don't even need to. Because God has done it for you. And that's how it's always been for the Jewish people. Abraham, 400 years before that Mosaic law was ever even given, before works of the law was even ever a phrase. God came and blessed him and showed him his grace and Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And if that's true, for the founder of the Jewish people to become a part of the covenant people of God, how much more for me and you? It's a question that I think Paul is inviting us to ask and I'm gonna put it right here on the screen. Do you find yourself trying to work hard to earn right standing with God? It's simple, it's just right there, do you? Because if you do, you're in the same boat as the Galatians and hear Paul's message. Who's bewitched you? Who's bewitched you? Why are you trying to do something you can never achieve when God has already given it to you freely? Or think about it this way. Whose kid are you? All right. Whose kid are you? Just shout out, shout out their names. And the rest of you don't know. <laughs> Apparently, a lot of white shoes in your family tree. So, arguably, most of you don't know, but I think we can go with this line of thinking. Did you become their son or daughter by your own effort? So you're telling me you had nothing to do with it. No, you became your son, their son and daughter because your mom and dad were fooling around, right? And it had nothing to do with you. You know, Jesus says you must be born again. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. I tell you the truth, he says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Why would we think our spiritual birth has anything more to do with us than our physical birth happened to do? This is why John will write things like this. He came to that which was his own and yet his own did not receive him. But to those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. See, implicit to this whole thing is that the Galatians wanted to be children of God. They wanted to be the covenant people of God, which means they wanted to be connected to Abraham's family, always known as being the Jews. And that's why Paul will write in Galatians 3, understand that those who believe are children of Abraham. That's why he'll write in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to us Gentiles through Christ so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And for Paul, this is the heart of the gospel. And it's not something new. It's something that goes back to the beginning of God's salvation plan in this world with Abraham as the kickstart of it all. Convinced? That it's all on God and not on you? Convinced? That there's nothing you can do? Convinced? Convinced? That it's been given to you freely, convinced that it's all about what God does and not what you do? If so, great. Respond to it then in faith. No, not yet. That's okay. Because Paul isn't done trying to convince you yet. And we're only at chapter 3, verse 14. Stick with it. See what he argues and see what he says. Maybe, just maybe. He'll help you see everything in relation to God differently.